0: Some of the hymns that we sing regularly include language that can be problematic, particularly one of the most challenging theological assumptions that disability theology very often pushes up against is something called the sin-disability conflation. The idea that disability is directly the result of sin. There are a lot of things the scripture says about disability. If you read the gospels, it's clear that Jesus's ministry, so much of it is encountered with people with disabilities. Um, One text that commentators repeatedly point us to from the disability community is John 9. In this text, the disciples actually ask Jesus directly when they see a man who's blind from birth, who sinned? Like, how did this come to be? And Jesus refutes their assumption that sin is what led to this man being blind Um, and in fact goes further to say god's works might be revealed in him that there is some intent or purpose in his blindness so that should give us some cause for reflection i think especially when it comes for the words that we sing and the metaphors that we use not just in hymnody but in worship and in preaching and in the life of the church
1: and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, podcast listeners of all ages and stages, bienvenue. Welcome to the Jolly Thoughts podcast. Today you are joining episode 54 and you're in for a good one. My conversation partner today is a man by the name of Mitchell Ethan. Uh, I connected with Mitchell ever so briefly when he and I were uh, both in Montreal at the Hymn Society's uh, annual conference, which is uh, in August here. He was one of three scholars who presented papers as part of the Emerging Scholars uh, Forum that they had there. And his uh, was particularly interesting to me. Uh, and That's mostly what we're going to unpack today is his kind of work in this area of uh, disability theology and how disability theology connects with hymnody or liturgy or the songs that we, we sing and share together. We also get into his story a little bit about how he came into the research that he's in and I discover a new instrument that I was not hitherto aware existed. So all in all, for me, super educational uh, conversation and time. I think that you're going to find it interesting too. I think it might challenge you, might stretch you a little bit, uh, but being challenged and being stretched rarely has negative outcomes uh, in the long run. It can hurt a little bit, but it's usually kind of useful. So hopefully you'll stick around Uh, throughout this conversation and uh, let me know what kind of thoughts it's elicited for you what kind of questions it may be brought around for you so without any further ado my conversation with Mitchell Ethan we met ever so briefly in Montreal at the Hymn Society conference and I was able to hear you give a paper, a paper that's mostly what we're going to chat about today. And I'm sure it will bring us into some other you know, interesting areas. Uh, but then I was like, you know, I did what any uh, self-respecting person would do, which is I crept you on the internet. And uh, <laughs> I discovered that your, your story, which is what I'm going to start with, I'm just going to ask you a little bit about your story. Uh, what led you into worship studies is, uh, I mean, it's just such a classic tale. You know, it's pretty much like what everybody would expect, which is that it seems as though you like... You know, like nine out of ten people who are involved in worship studies, you started as a mathematician, uh, and then moved from mathematics into what seems to be some sort of specialization in handbells, and now are taking an MDiv <laughs> in you know, some sort of liturgical studies. So it's just like it's you know, tale as old as time. It's just what everybody pretty much <laughs> does. Just kidding, it's kind of a circuitous route to where you have landed. So what what happened in Mitchell's life that made, made these things go on?
0: Yeah, I studied math, computer science, and music in undergrad at a small liberal arts college. Um, I always thought I'd be a high school mathematics teacher, but then did some research at the undergrad level. And then in consultation with my professors, realized maybe I could be a good researcher. So I went to grad school. I was in a math PhD program at Michigan State. Um for many reasons that didn't work out so well one of the biggest ones is this feeling that I could do these things but they just don't really fill me I'm not very passionate about it um which kind of stunk because in a way I felt like I was good at it like I I knew how to work that academic area but I just it was just very dry for me and caused a lot of anxiety just this sense of this is not what I meant to be doing exactly so Ended up leaving that program um, with a master's in computational mathematics, science, and engineering. That's the the full title, technically. Yeah, <laughs> and then that was around the time of the pandemic, um, and around that time, I did a lot of projects for churches. Um, I think it's emerging now as this title, Digital Ministry, but did a lot of virtual choir projects, liturgical videos, just create a lot of resources to support churches um, during that time. And also tried to uh, decide to try teaching. I always thought I'd be a math teacher. Um, So I taught at a community college for one year and then at a high school for a year. But in the midst of that, a lot of folks were encouraging me to consider going to seminary, um, thinking that I may be effective as a church leader. And it's something I had thought about for a long time, at least since college. Um, but in that kind of pandemic transitionary time, it seemed like maybe now's the time to step into this um, or at least um, step into an extent to see what it would be like and explore vocationally what it would mean to do ministry. So,
1: okay. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot there that I. Would want to inquire about. So there's no disclaimers on this in advance, but what I normally tell people is if I ask you a question that you don't want to answer, you just easily don't answer it. Uh, So that's no problem (laughs) at all. Uh, And we also have the ability to edit, but we we don't need to probably most of the time because I I can take no for an answer. Um, But what's your, if you don't mind me asking, what's your faith story? So what's kind of your history with church? What did you kind of, how was was church growing up for you? Yeah,
0: I've essentially rode the mainline circuit. I've been a part of many different mainland Protestant churches, but I grew up in a congregation of the United Church of Christ on the congregational side. In that context, my mom was the music minister, also the organist, also the handbell director. So in that world, um, I began to really love church music, especially in a liturgical setting, and singing hymns, learning about hymn texts and hymn writers was something I think that was really formative to me, um, especially high school and college when I started to just pay a bit more attention to what music we use um, and how it fits in the service. But the church I grew up in was was very kind, um, formed me deeply. I had a lot of friends in the church that were much older than me, um, much older adults that were my best friends in that time in life. And the deal was, I would go and fix their computer, and they would make me some brownies. Um, it was kind of the working <laughs> arrangement that we that we had throughout high school. <laughs> Um, It was also a church that was so militant about service. I think if there were opportunities to be helping someone in the community, you know, you should have been doing it yesterday was kind of the posture. So I think from that congregation, I learned just a lot about um, what it means to be the hands and feet of Christ to use a scriptural idea. I went to college. Um, I went to a small college and unfortunately there wasn't a big campus ministry scene. Um, There was one campus ministry and it was quite fundamental. And I just had a really hard time working with those folks. I tried um, on a couple occasions, but it was just really not the best fit for my values um, and convictions. But I was a part of a local church in college. Continued to be involved in music. I actually first started singing in a choir at that point. I had grown up with a lot of handbells. Um, my mom has written a lot of handbell music, directs handbell ensembles. Um, so I was familiar with that realm, but not so much vocal choir. So in college, actually, I, I started singing and realized, oh, I could be a better musician all around if I'm involved in a local church choir. Um, in college, I got a music minor, which I think was such a great decision because my major friends, you know, had to go through so many juries and lessons, and I just got to take all the fun theory and history classes and didn't have to worry about giving um, a recital at the end of college, for example. <laughs> so very thankful for that um, experience. I was also in band and jazz band, played the saxophone and the clarinet. Um. But I think I've always felt this deep attachment to the church and what it could be, especially the sense of community that it provides for so many people. But it really wasn't until I got to Michigan State grad school the first time that I really saw more deeply um, the power of Bible study and theology. I was part of a Christian Reformed uh, um, campus ministry group. The CRC is really big in, in Michigan, but... We had one of the few grad student ministries at Michigan State, and so I was an intern for that group. Um, led a lot of Bible studies, book studies, pub theology, but that's when it really came alive for me. Like, wow, this is so something that's really interesting to study and engage with. Um, I feel like the method that my mentor had instilled me with. She was an Old Testament scholar, um, and she was our our the leader of our group and a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church. And I just learned so much from her about how to engage the scriptures in meaningful ways. And that was inspiring to me. So I think that was one of the most formative experiences, especially be with grad students, some who are quite skeptical, others who are quite fundamental and everywhere in between. And it kind of engage these challenging questions. You know, the posture of our group was like, let's talk about the most challenging scriptures we can find or the most challenging social issues, you know, because these were really folks that, wanted to think deeply and even academically about these things, but perhaps in their churches didn't find that opportunity or outlet. So that's kind of all stirring. I was also um, a music director at a Presbyterian church for about five years um, in Holtz, Michigan. I I love those folks. It was such a wonderful, wonderful church, um, First Presbyterian Church of Holt. I was a member of University Lutheran Church um, near campus, did a lot of projects with them in the pandemic. I was part Of University Methodist Church for a while, so a broad range of of mainline churches.
1: Very cool. Uh, So, I mean, now that you're studying with the MDiv uh, at at Duke, is it specifically with a focus towards liturgy or uh, music in any way?
0: Not explicitly. Um, I'll be doing though a certificate in worship and the arts, and so thinking critically about those things, taking a few extra classes, doing a project. So. I'll be able to focus on some of those things, although my degree is is an MDiv, Master of Divinity.
1: Very good, very good. So, okay, well, that this is, that, that gives a good uh, picture of. So you, I mean, music was in your roots, was in your bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but obviously, you're good with music. Is math is a, is something that I've heard often bandied about. So it's not really shocking that somebody who is maybe you know efficient with being able to understand intervals and all that kind of good stuff could also be somebody who can understand the difference between uh, how, you know how the square root of pi makes all that delicious stuff, work together. I don't really know. But it, it is still unusual, uh, I think, to, to see those kind of things work in both hemispheres of the brain, maybe working at the same time. So where I observed you then was when you were, again, in Montreal giving a paper. I'm assuming that you did this paper as part of your research through, uh, through Duke, but possibly maybe it was specifically for the Hymn Society. I'm not really not entirely sure what this, the genesis of it was, but it was about disability uh studies and how they interact with kind of hymnody, hymnody or uh, congregational music uh and it was i mean it was it was very fascinating it was part of it was kind of a um a waterfall experience uh, frankly because in like a one-hour session you had three people who presented these like high-flying uh uh, concepts back to back, and yours was one that definitely stood out to me as being um, definitely worth considering and kind of wrestling with. Um, do you want to start maybe by kind of giving us a walkthrough of some of the some of the content of it, and then I can kind of poke and prod some of the questions that I had as we as I was reflecting upon sure. it. Sure,
0: and maybe I can give you a little background too on kind sure. of how the project came to be. So, the roots actually, I think for me personally, um, are even earlier. I had. A friend that I met in college, actually, she was a math researcher and I was, too, and we went to um, a research experience for undergraduates in Texas. And she was really interested in disability from an academic perspective. And I think that was the first time I had ever connected those dots, that disability is something that people thought deeply about and also that it was an identity that many people claim. Um, We're used to human categories such as race and gender that really form our world, but the category of disability, I think, is just one that I had not thought of, or it was just kind of outside my purview. But that planted the seeds um, and some of the discussions I had with her understanding disability with a little more nuance and then I think just experiences in church, particularly with singing hymns, but also other activities in the life of the church, I began to think more critically, you know, does what we sing and what we believe really reflect the most charitable view of people with disabilities? Um, sometimes the things we say can really be unhelpful or harmful. And. Um, So these were things that were brewing in my mind previously, and last fall, I had the opportunity to take a class called the Disabled Church. Um, It was led by Dr. Sarah Barton. She graduated from Duke um, with her PhD and is now a professor in the Divinity School, Um, and her interest is disability theology, so interfacing the experience of disability, academic perspectives on disability, with the life of the church. And this class specifically was focused on the life of the church, so activities that churches do, um, sacramental life of the church, worship, kind of broad strokes about how does disability fit in. So that's kind of the backdrop, my own interest and then the class coming up. And when I saw that we were to do a final project, I thought, oh, I'd love to look more into this. you know, it's interesting. I, I joke that every class I try to um, find a way I can make it about hymnody or church music, because that's <laughs> kind of one of my primary interests. But I thought it would be really interesting to see if there had been anything written on the words of hymns and songs in Christian worship and how that interfaces with disability and there's really not too much. There's a few people who have written critiques of certain hymnals from a disability perspective, but there's really not much out there. And furthermore, and maybe more importantly, there, in hymnals themselves, there's not that much recognition of disability as a human condition. Um, there are a lot of hymns in contemporary times that have been written to address societal concerns um, such as as race and gender and class and war and things that were not traditionally written about in hymnody, but disability is really something that's not come into that conversation very strongly. So I thought there would be a good opportunity to take a survey to see what hymnals have said, um, hymns that people have written, and walk through some critiques of those hymns to see where does the language help support the efforts of disability theology? And where might it need to be changed or adapted to do so better? I should say that what I mean by disability theology is this emerging movement in the last 30 years or so um, to interface disability with, with theology, to think about the life of the church and the scriptures and how we think and interpret them from the standpoint and experience of disability,
1: and I can ask just a clarifier here before we go too far into this. Because, um, mm-hmm. what what do we mean when we say disability?
0: That's a great question, and is a contested question. It kind of depends <laughs> who you who you ask. Um, I'm not an expert in this realm. I think one definition that's helpful is from the UN. It says disability is a long term physical, mental, intellectual or sensory impairment, which in interaction with various barriers may hinder a person's full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others. The two key parts of that definition, I think, are impairments and society. So disability is a recognition of human impairment that can take on many different manifestations it can be mental it can be intellectual physical sensory and so on but really it's the society and how it's set up and the attitudes and the structures and the physical buildings that um, we create in society that make it difficult for people with disabilities to fully participate um, as compared with people who are non-disabled So I think two key parts, impairments in society. Okay. There's also more expansive definitions, but I think that one's pretty straightforward.
1: I think that's helpful because it points out, um, or I guess it's helpful for this conversation, because it points out that you're saying that it's it's about to what degree certain uh, physical or mental attributes cause uh, a challenge to interact with other people. Uh, or other institutions, not just that they exist, but that to the degree that they may or may not be barriers for for them to have full engagement with other people. You also mentioned, I believe, in your um, in your paper when you were giving it the idea that there's kind of two different, not that we need to get bogged down in terminology, but if you don't know what you're talking about, then it's hard to understand what's being said. Uh, There's kind of two different kind of languages. There's people first language and then there's kind of attribute first language and so the idea of being uh, a person with disabilities versus a disabled person uh, and that there I don't as far as I can tell, there is no um, there's no gold standard, right? There's just kind of like <laughs> there's different people who use different terminologies and you got to just kind of own own the limitations of each in some respects.
0: Exactly. Yeah, there's pros and cons to each. And ultimately, as a personal choice, um, it's important, I think, to understand how individuals would like to be identified. Um, but there our um, efforts to in writing to use both types of language.
1: So when you're surveying the the hymns, then and that's what mm-hmm. I mean. So you know, for people who're listening, hymns are things that are contained in hymn books. No, because uh, you know, I'm so I, I serve mostly in a in an evangelical context, and so we're not typically using a lot of hymn books. Um, but at the end of the, at the end of the day, these these examples will be mostly kind of transferable. And the reason that stood stood out to me, I, I made a mental note. You had me most of the time, but you really locked me uh, when you use the the example of the hymn "Holy, Holy, Holy," because that's one of the, like, there's probably like six or seven hymns that end up being in like semi, you know, back catalog rotation in like a church like mine. And that's definitely one of them. And the example that you use, which I won't steal the thunder of, is one that I have used. And I was like, oh, I see how that could be a, I see how that could be a bit of a challenge. And so as you were surveying, that's just a bit of a, of a teaser to keep people engaged. So as you were surveying the, the hymnals in particular, what were the kinds of things that you noticed?
0: Yeah, that's a great example. So one fundamentally is um, what people say about their own hymnals. So often hymnals come with a preface. And if you're a hymn nerd like me, you read those because they're really interesting. They give insights into what the editors were thinking about, especially at the time. Um, Church music hymnody is a fluid enterprise, and there are different emphases at different times, different trends. So you sort of get a sense of... Um, What were they considering in the committee? And something I noticed is that not very many hymnals speak about disability. Certainly there have been some mainline hymnals in the last few decades that have brought it up in some way. They'll use phrases like in the United Methodist hymnal, handicapping conditions, the Presbyterian hymnal of 1990, physical limitations, the new century hymnal. 1995 of the United Church of Christ is the first hymnal I could find that specifically says the word disability. It says physical disabilities. Um, 2013, the most recent Presbyterian hymnal, Glory to God, um, just says disabilities, which I think is the most helpful because it doesn't limit that experience to being something that's a physical condition, but disabilities broadly. But in general, these hymnals don't engage the topic deeply. And perhaps more importantly, some of the hymns that we sing regularly include language that can be problematic, particularly one of the most challenging theological assumptions that disability theology very often pushes up against is something called the sin-disability conflation. The idea that disability is directly the result of sin, simply put. There's an interesting article by Craig Satterley. He's a bishop in the ELCA, the Lutheran Church, and he writes, I'm legally blind and regularly sing hymns in worship that clearly declare a negative view of people who live with disabilities. And the primary example he cites is the hymn, Holy, 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 by Reginald Heber. And I agree, this is one of those very universal hymns that so many people know. And in mainline church land, there's been debates in recent decades about how you refer to people, how you refer to God, um, using what's called more inclusive language in both of those camps and debates about how that plays out. But the original text of the hymn in verse three says, uh, through the eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see. And the word man there is a bit problematic for those that would like to see more expensive language for humanity, because man historically has been used to refer to humans, but there's some effort to remove away from that, use words like like humanity. And so the change that was made in the Lutheran hymnal is through the eye made blind by sin. And so that metaphor directly links blindness and sin, being blind by sin. And of course, it's a metaphor. It's using the idea of blindness to talk about a more general idea of, of not seeing or not perceiving God rightly, perhaps.
1: A spiritual blindness, if you will.
0: Yes, yeah, the metaphor of spiritual blindness. But the fact of the matter is, is it associates sin and blindness directly. Um, And that sort of language is generally considered very much not helpful at all. It furthers this idea that people with disabilities experience disability because they had sinned in some way. There are a lot of things the scripture says about disability. If you read the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus's ministry, so much of it is encounters with people with disabilities. Um, One text that commentators repeatedly point us to from the disability community is John 9. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. In this text, the disciples actually ask Jesus directly when they see a man who's blind from birth, who sinned? Like, how did this come to be? And Jesus refutes their assumption that sin is what led to this man being blind. Um, And in fact, goes further to say God's works might be revealed in him, that there is some intent or purpose in his blindness. So that should give us some cause for reflection, I think, especially when it comes for the words that we sing and the metaphors that we use, not just in hymnody, but in worship and in preaching and in the life of the church to think carefully about why we say um, the things we do and what assumptions are underneath them that really are unhelpful and here, in fact, refuted by the words of Jesus himself.
1: Yeah, I mean... So, I mean, I want to, I want to ask some some maybe pushback probing questions, but mm-hmm. I want to let you lay out. I want to let you lay out as much of your work first, so that I don't. I'm, there's no reason to ask a question that you're gonna go ahead and answer as as you go. So, but I think we're gonna come back to John nine because there's something in that that I'm that I was processing when you shared that the first time. Uh, something resonates deeply, then also something. Um, I think. I think the the undergirding theologies that different churches different traditions might have will help us hear this, hear what you're saying, and also hear the words of Jesus um, in in different ways, kind of depending upon how we're how we're experiencing um, how we might expect God to be working in the world. I think might be one kind of mm. thing that that is interesting. Um,
0: yeah, I wouldn't but, mind exploring that complexity now if you'd like to.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I just so here, <laughs> So so the first. the the first thing is, uh, actually, you mentioned throughout your work here, um, a hymn writer, maybe the name is John Gage. I'm going to look at that here. Uh, Yeah, John Gage.
0: Yeah, contemporary pastor who, um, he offers uh, an edited version of the hymn, Just
1: As I Am. Right. Um, And so, I mean, I I do want to get to some kind of uh, some prescriptive stuff, like some, maybe some best practices, because I think you have some really good examples to think through here. But I, I noticed when I was reading uh, his version of it, um, he says, Just as I am, uh, with this my plea, thine image divine writ deep in me, writ deep in me, just so thou bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And then his second verse, Just as I am, as thou made me, so wondrously, so vulnerably, with limits and abilities O Lamb of God, I come. And I think that was one of the most beautiful things that came out of your um, hmm. your your session. Was uh, I? I was actually kind of a bit of a theme that came out of a number of different sessions during that kind of brief conference in Montreal, which is uh, a very familiar theme. Which is that part of the the wonder uh, of humanity is that it is it is bounded. It is it is limited. It has as he says here, uh, limits and vulnerabilities, that that is not a curse, that it's in some respects a blessing, the idea that we have, you know, we, we, we are not God. This is a very clear kind of foundational, uh, you know, Sunday School 101 kind of thing, right? I'm not God. There's God, hmm. there's me, and I'm not God. This <laughs> is very, very important stuff. Um, but not but, and. And the idea that God has made us how we are is an important thing to wrestle with. So what that we that we are um, just as I am, that, that we're invited to come to God just as we are. But different churches and different traditions will think that you are hopefully they will all think that you're innately valuable. Hopefully that will that'll be a non-negotiable. Like that humanity, regardless of color, regardless of creed, that they're all, regardless of gender, they're all valuable. Um, and that God is uh, sent his son to die for them. That's a, maybe a Christian tenet as well. But they will differ to the degree that humans are uh, not only valuable, but malleable, so that they, can, that they can change, and that there may be some parts of their received nature that are not necessarily expected to be maintained. So I do wonder to what degree um, that wrestling happens. So we mentioned John 9, you know, who sinned, this man or his father? Uh, that he, you know, be born like this neither, right? But that, uh, but that, uh, God's purposes might be revealed. And I think he heals the blind man, uh, is what happens next in the story. Mm-hmm. And so that's one, I find that this is a, there's a bit of a tension here in, uh, so one of the things you, one of the books that you mentioned, uh, in your, uh, in your talk, I actually picked it up because I was like, I've, I've yes. seen it advertised before and I, and I but I said, I'm, I'm going to get it. So It was as you were speaking. It was in my Amazon queue. My body is not a prayer request by Amy Kenny And I have not burned through it all um, But I'm starting to leaf through it and I think it's I think it's valuable. It's a great perspective to grab hold to but to be honest with you my church tradition and the the theology that I hold is that we do pray for people Uh, we pray for people who are having a hard time with finances and they 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 need to see God move in a certain way. We pray for people whose marriages are on the rocks because they can't seem to work through some sort of a disagreement in their household. Um, we pray for people who you know their their kids lost, and we want to make sure that their kid comes home. And we pray for people who are sick. Like that's that's part of our our church tradition. I think it's part of most church traditions is that there would be prayer. the sick you know in in catholic tradition to be like extreme unction right now it's pretty much on deathbeds exclusively but not some churches practice it before that right um and so help me understand what's baked into this kind of approach that says um i mean we should be sensitive and we should be looking for how we can include all people um without necessarily or maybe maybe this doesn't play into the way that you you see the world and that's fine but I guess for this to be kind of more applicable outside of just your church Mm. tradition how can we people who believe that God can move in somebody's life and and can heal uh, not just mental capacities but can help heal bodies how are we to approach this uh, people who are who are disabled people with disabilities um, in the world at large but also I guess more specifically in the context of our liturgies and our worship services?
0: Yeah, that's a big question. There's a lot <laughs> a lot there. And I think a lot of the questions you've asked actually are what we talked about in our class week to week um, are a lot of those complexities. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind um, is just to think what does healing mean in different contexts and for different people? Um, there's another book, uh, it's called The Healing homiletic by Kathy black. And she kind of delves into a lot of the different gospel stories where Jesus encounters people with disabilities. Um, and she makes an argument though, that, um, in our modern context, when we have, you know, more ready access to healthcare and, and, and products and things that can improve us that we're so focused on those, um, physical changes that we might like to see in ourselves, whereas the setting of the Gospels, um, healing is much more of a communal aspect that you'll recall a lot of stories and encounters with Jesus. People, they're sent back to their community to tell them or or not to keep that messianic secret. Um, but there's often some sense that it's not just that this person um, was blind and could now see, for example, but is restored to community, is able to fully participate. And she suggests that we've we've lost that focus, um, but that if we restore that focus, we see it more as a story of restoration um, to a people as opposed to something that's just exclusively the relieving of an ailment. Healing is a much broader concept um, than just that. And we tend to kind of narrow ourselves, especially um, when it's things that we can see to think, oh, I'm in this state. Wouldn't it be better to be in this state? Um, And of course, individuals have, you know, their own life experience and perspective. But there are a lot of people with disabilities, as Amy Kenney's book, I think, um, strongly argues that see themselves as this is a valid way to be human. This is my valid state. This is not something that just needs to be fixed. And for many people with disabilities, especially when you could something that you can observe, a lot of um, folks without disabilities might come and sort of expect like, oh, they, they want to be in a better state. They're in a sorry state. Um, and just often making so many assumptions about the sort of existence that people would like to take or what would be ideal. And a lot of authors say, no, like this this is who I am. This is my identity. Um, This is how I move about the world. And what makes it difficult is not the fact that I'm, for example, a wheelchair user. What makes it difficult is just no ramp to my bank or my church, right? Um, And so trying to shift that focus of what the true challenge is, and of course, a lot of people with disabilities do have a lot of medical challenges often, although they're very personal. And often people feel like they can kind of, oh, I see someone, you know, who has disabilities. Um, I'll talk to them about those things. And it's a very personal sort of enterprise that we don't, in other contexts, just go up to people and say, you know, oh, tell me about your last doctor appointment, you know. Um, But because it's something we can observe, we sort of feel like we have the right to do that. And um, Kenny, I think, tries to to prompt us to to rethink our assumptions entirely. But I think one of the main themes that sticks out to me is being mindful of what does healing mean. And for so many people, that's not exactly having an able body, but it's having societal structures that allow full and equal participation. Um, Often in churches that can manifest as physical barriers quite a lot of the time. Um, Churches are one of the only American institutions exempt from the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, A lot of different denominations co-signed in the late 1980s to want that exemption, fearing that, for example, historic buildings would have to be upgraded or modified or local churches would just not be able to afford um, the updates needed. But what that means is that in the church, there's actually no legal requirement to provide what's necessary in other every other area of our society to um, allow spaces to be acce- accessible, um, particularly for people with physical disabilities.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful uh, to hear that. Uh, I think it moves the conversation down the line um, in terms of, you know, so what does healing look like? Um, uh and I'm not a, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I've read the Bible a couple of times, and I do remember a lot of time uh, it seems like Jesus would say, uh, you know, what do you, when he would ask somebody, you know, what do you want? It was often that uh, healing was not always. It didn't seem like it was always uh, implied. It seemed like it was like Jesus was kind of saying to the person who was about to receive healing, you know, what are you looking for today? Like what's the what would what would you like to have happen? Almost kind of like a a level of consent as it were to use kind of modern language in terms Mm -hmm. of how that would go. And so, I mean, we don't have a lot of records of people saying I'm good. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, (laughs) I I only have the, 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 you know, the, the one leg, but, but I'm, I'm fine. I'd like to stay this way because as you said, there's not really many, there were very few options for people at that that point in time to be vibrant Mm -hmm. members of, of community. It was a very, very difficult thing. Um, I think there's still a lot to necessarily kind of theologically a lot to wrestle with in terms of, what does that mean for us in the, the 21st century church in terms of um, how are we enriched mosaically by by welcoming in people and making sure that all people are included <laughs> uh, and then but, so there's 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 receiving there's there's give in that respect but there's also some some people would argue that there's take in terms of um, sometimes it's almost perceived like one has to one has to weaken, the core or weaken what would be considered the definition uh, of whatever a standard is uh, so that people on the margins are received in. I guess that, I mean this is speaking, you know speaking out loud things that I have you know, way less, uh, put way less thought into and have way less education in uh, than, than than yourself and the most people, is that there is this kind of idea that if you, like I think the church is supposed to bring in the margins, I think that's kind of how that's supposed to be But some parts of culture, sometimes what we're perceiving or what is being perceived is that instead of bringing in the margins, what's being asked is that the margins sometimes become central. And so that we shift the perception of what the center is so that other people will kind of be marginalized in the process. I think this is kind of what the fear of a lot of people who are maybe considered fundamentalist or conservative have, Mm. is that by bringing in, by, by, by redefining... You know, language and by redefining norms and standards, it's not that what's going to happen is that everybody's all happy clappy together. What's going to happen is that the people who were centralized may become decentralized. Right? There's almost like a revolutionary implication in some of these some of these contexts, which of course brings to mind the first being last and the last being first. And so, it's not that there's no biblical precedent for this kind of uh, this kind of approach, but I, I, I mean, when you talk about the is it the ADA, the American mm-hmm. so the Disabilities Act, which I'm in the U. am in Canada. And so this is, we would have a different kind of legislation. Sure.
0: Yeah. That was passed in 1990 and kind of a monumental act of civil rights legislation in the United States. Which is States. Huge.
1: Yeah. But I mean, obviously, I mean, it does, it does not surprise me that churches would lobby to be exempt from that kind of thing because of like all the very things that you mentioned and it, but it doesn't surprise me. And yet it, it is, it can sound like a, a pretty selfish right like we're looking out for our own it sounds like a church would be looking for its own best interests as opposed to the interests of society but then again what is a church if a church is not the community of people that make it up then it's what? what is it and so so advocating for the rights and the best interests of the people who are the people who are in the church is kind of the church's responsibility and so what it kind of sounds like again to be somebody who's playing not the devil's advocate, hopefully, but the the opposition's advocate is that sometimes you're just saying, well, we, hey, this is what a lot of people uh, tend to do when you're looking at like uh, spectrums of, you know, left, right, which is whatever we want to say. Those are stupid things. But a lot of people who are perceived as being kind of like really bigoted or whatever, uh, sometimes on the right, what they're really saying is we would prefer to be the ones to make these Changes voluntarily rather than have these changes be foisted upon us by legislation from the outside. Now, a great survey would be to find out how many churches voluntarily went ahead and put in accessibility and put in elevators and all that kind of good stuff right because my you know one would suspect that it was probably not quite as many as would have had to have done it if it had been legislated. yeah and
0: and remarkably i mean something just important to point out is that the ada fundamentally transformed american society um in that there are millions of people who are now working who are now housed that weren't previously because of that legislation like this is something that vastly improved the lives of of many many people um and so it's from my perspective a little embarrassing that churches campaigned against it in the sense of like this is something that like uplifts people and if you read the gospels like jesus has so many encounters with people with disabilities bringing them into the fold and um the fact that so many christians we're so concerned about other things and not the well-being of people, I think, is something that um, we should look back on with, with a bit of remorse from my perspective.
1: Yeah, I'll, rec- I'll receive that word. Uh, so I want to ask how things have changed in, in your perspective since you've been working through this stuff. Uh, but I mean, the rubber hit the road for me in, in a in a way, it's happened to me a few times Um but I was I was reminded of it in a very vibrant way when I was listening to you speak. So, again, our church contexts are a little bit different. So, like, our Sunday morning is, is pretty much just kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of pop, rock, and roll as, you know, contemporary mm-hmm. praise and worship. It's guitars, it's drums. It's pretty high energy. Um, and so it's not uncommon for me to ask people to, you know, engage Bodily, So not just sing, but to kind of, you know, hey, let's move around a little bit. And so one of the things we'll often do is we'll ask people to clap their hands. And so a, a number of times I have said the words out loud, uh, if you've got two hands, let's put them together. And there is in my congregation somebody who only has one hand. And so I know this to be the case. I, I know this person very well. Uh, but still, it doesn't always Ring at the top of my, mind. I mean it does now. It's been a, it's been a couple of years since I've made that particular uh, statement out loud. I don't even know if I'd say it, say as a faux pas because at the end of the day, I'm allowing for uh, people who don't have t- two hands to not do that. Um, but it it goes to show you that there's this thing that's a corporate thing that we're trying to do together. That um, hey, let's let's all kind of clap our hands. But I do know that not everybody is able to quote clap their hands now i don't know how things were in north carolina during covid and i don't know when you moved down there but in it where, where i was up here here in eastern canada it got so wild for a while in terms of what the restrictions were that regardless of whether you were masked distanced and under a certain capacity of people it was illegal to sing in a group so you could have had a under limited number of people well you know Uh, five meters apart, all wearing masks, they still weren't allowed to sing. So we would have congregational worship services where I was asking people to think along with me or, you know, mumble under their breath along with me, right? Like there was no, like the participation was, was, had to be radically shifted. But during that time, we taught some people uh, like one song inside, Oh, oh, praise him. Uh, the St. Francis of C.C. knock off their, oh, praise him. Um, and so it was during that time that I realized that even and when we were able to, you know, slowly roll back and allow to sing, it's like, well, there are people who week in and week out, because we actually do have a death ministry at our church. There are people who week in and week out were not able to sing. So like, the, and there are people in our congregation, when we do videos, um, if the video has text written on the screen, but no voiceover. There are people in our congregation who, who cannot see that, right? There are so many different ways um, that people can be marginalized or and, and extremely accidentally excluded from participating in what the kind of mass of God's people are supposed to be doing when they gather. Uh, and so even though this could sound like a super niche, almost, uh, to some people, because I've got a niche kind of fringe way of thinking about things, um, it actually is... I think is important and has implications for pretty much every size and every style of congregation. So as you've been, you know, after this has been released and as you've been thinking through this even more, are there any kind of new uh, evolutions in your thinking or anything that you might want to kind of make as an appendix to uh, what you released? Yeah.
0: Wow. That's a great question. (laughs) This summer, I had uh, a placement in an Episcopal parish, um, and if you've ever worshipped with Episcopalians or Anglicans, there is a lot of movement involved. Um, You know, it's a very high liturgical tradition, but there's a lot of sitting, standing, kneeling, coming to the front to receive the Eucharist. Um, And in that setting, it did get me thinking about there are people who can't do some of those activities, um, and what does that mean for their participation? And couple ideas came to mind. I think one is just accepting that um, particularity is not a bad thing. I think in the sense that there are times when some people can stand and some people can sit if they'd not like to stand or not able to stand. Um, That I think the call here is not to eliminate all things that can exclude necessarily, but to create more options for participation and full participation, and to imagine what it looks like for different sorts of people to participate in different sorts of ways. Um, and that second reflection, I think, that came out of that experience this summer is just in that tradition and in many traditions, um, high church traditions, the Eucharist is so central, you know, receiving communion, that just seeing the lengths that some folks went to, some older folks that perhaps did not walk as well to come to the front to receive. Um is just very powerful that in like, this is just such a fundamental act of worship to come to the altar and receive in that way. Um, and it's interesting because I have some tendency that's like, Oh, maybe we should make it more accessible by, you know, passing it out in the pews or allowing people to, to not have to travel so far through the space, things like that. But, um, Just something struck me about just the effort that people did take because it was so meaningful to them. And so I think that just gave me a little bit of pause to say, I don't want to also put things in place that limit the extent to which people want to participate. You know, like it doesn't need to be made easier for everyone. And so it comes back again to just options, choices. as well as implementing things that everyone can take part in. Um, you know, maybe it's not the two hands, but it's some sort of, you know, join with me, make a beat, you know, some sort of um, invitations that that could invite a whole host of different things and maybe things that one would not even anticipate. But I'm... I am definitely yeah. on the side of, you know, mainline church land comes sometimes is a bit stodgy. I've been with Presbyterians, the frozen chosen, you know, that are known for being everything <laughs> well and in order um, in worship. But we also had a collaboration with a Pentecostal congregation, um, Kojic. And so we had Presbycostal worship a few times, um, which is it's the future. <laughs> <laughs> probably is. But... Yeah. but um but it just struck me like how good it is to kind of get out of those bubbles and to have more disruption. And while, I don't come from a charismatic Pentecostal tradition that the there's a part of that that I can really appreciate of when the spirit moves, the spirit's going to move, and things are going to happen. um And I really appreciate that that worship sensibility that can sort of generate in the moment things that that happen um. So I think those are just some recent reflections from being in worship.
1: That's good. It's really it's it's good because it it can be it can be overwhelming. I I think like one one approach could be well I can't get any I can't get everybody to do anything. So I guess I'll have to ask everybody to do nothing. Like I think that's hmm. I think that could be like a a paralyzing kind of Hamlet style moment where it's like you know what. Uh, I? So the idea that it's like no that's not the move. The move is to be you know obviously reflect and and know your congregation as well as possible, um, and to be obviously seeking. Seeking God for how He think, how you think that He might want to have His heart best reflected into your congregation, but as especially if you're listening to this and you're a liturgical leader, your worship planner, your worship leader. Um, d- our job is to just lead as many people as possible, and especially the people that we happen to have in front of us towards God at a point in time. So just seeing how to do that for your people. And there's, trying to remove your blind spots as much as possible, I think is a really would be a really positive outcome of your, your the work that you've done and the work that other people are doing.
0: Yeah, and what's so key in what I think you initially said is knowing your people um, because, there's even terminology that, you know, researchers will suggest, this is not a great way to describe people with disabilities. And then you talk to an individual that says, please use that word. You know, there, there are things like that that happen, I've encountered, and it's so important just to know people and individuals and to really get a sense of um, what they need to participate in worship and what
1: um, their needs are. That's good. I can't believe I've gotten this far in the conversation and I have not asked you to pronounce your last name Ethan, it is Ethan. Okay, well, there you yeah. go. That's, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like the guy who's got two first names—the man so nice to name him twice—but uh, that's not how you pronounce. It. Okay, uh, Mitchell, Ethan, what are you working on next?
0: Good question. Um, I've gotten some feedback on my paper um, that I wrote for the hymn society, and I think I'm going to probe a little bit more into some more contemporary examples. Folks like Fanny Crosby have have bitten written about quite a bit. I don't spend too much time on her in my paper, but she does seem notable as the most prolific hymn writer of all time and experienced disability. Um, So to try to reckon with her experience, but trying to find some more contemporary um, examples. And they pointed out to me that there are some very recent hymn collections um, where people have at least brought disability as a theme or something to contend with. Um, And so to try to Kind of weave all those things in as I revise my paper.
1: If people wanted to keep uh, up to speed on that, and, and what's like, what, what's the area that you're you're outputting stuff? Is it on Is it on Twitter? Is it on Substack? Is it via Oh, email great question. A
0: I'm most active on my Facebook page. It's called Mitchell Ethan Music. Um, also, in there, you'll get a lot of reflections on handbells and on the carillon, this other bell instrument. Um, <laughs> But um, on there, I've posted a bit about also this growing interest that I've had in interfacing disability and church music.
1: Okay, I'll make sure to put a link that Mitchell Ethan music. I'll, I'll link that in the, the show notes for this. Uh, Carolyn, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. What, what, for the for the visually impaired <laughs> for the visually impaired, who's everybody who's listening to this podcast, uh, describe what that looks like.
0: Yeah, so a carillon is a large tower bell instrument. It has at least two octaves of bells and it's controlled by a manual keyboard. What? So for example, our carillon at Duke Chapel, it's um, about five stories up um, in the chapel building. It's a large Gothic cathedral. There's a keyboard, a clavier that has batons for your hands and a pedal board for your feet. And you play it kind of like an organ, like an oversized organ. Each baton is connected via wire to a bell clapper above. So there's 50 bells in the tower, and then I can play those bells using a keyboard and create music.
1: Good gravy. So the, not every church <laughs> is is, is low, loaded with one of these bad boys.
0: No, there are only about 190 in North America. Okay. Um, so it's a fairly rare instrument. And I've visited maybe about 25 at this point in North America. And there's always an interesting story. I mean, very often it's this person you know, had a lot of money, or they died and left a lot of money. And wanted a carillon at some point in history. So.
1: so, if you visited 25 and 190, I think, mm-hmm. I mean, if you put a GoFundMe page up, you could probably make this your last work to visit <laughs> it all. Well, it's it, really
0: I, fun. I, yeah. I often post about it because um, there's just each one has its own story. Some of them are very open, like, come on and play. Others are like, oh, who are you? You know, um, yeah, yeah. there's kind of a wide degree of accessibility and reception. Um, but I think maybe that's another interest I have is just um, the use of bells um in its uh church life um for sure but not all carillons are at churches many universities have them or other civic um institutions in the united states the churches with the most are the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church USA which historically are the most wealthy denominations um as well but they have the most (laughs) number of carillons in local churches um because they do cost a lot the the new one at NC State down the road for me um, cost about six million dollars when they installed it two years ago. So that gives you kind of a sense of the investment.
1: You could buy a lot of drum kits for six million dollars, man. Like yes. Uh, do, the, do do you, so? Do bells make a resurgence? In, like, are are you going to walk into the average church and have any kind of bell being played in June, or are these like really just kind of Christmas instruments? So. It depends from place to place, um, but at Duke,
0: for example, we play the carol on every weekday and before and after worship on Sundays. Okay. And so you hear um, music daily for about 15 minutes. We can't do it all the time because it's a busy university, you know, and it would be a, a noise issue, but um, kind of just to support the, the sonic landscape uh, of the community. And it's a really interesting art because it's so public and so private, you know, everyone hears you a lot of people don't even know there's a person making it <laughs> It's the most <laughs> yeah. public of of instruments but also a very private endeavor and there's people out there carolinists or carolinuers were called who think about what this means exactly um for a long time there's been a certain sort of music you know patriotic music or hymns that's played from carolines um and so now there's some recognition of hmm, how can we support sort of the entire community that's there and what would it mean to play different kinds of music because there's a lot of power with being able to, you know, when I'm when I'm up there I can produce music that's heard in a one mile radius around me. Um, And so I can subliminally message, you know, a whole university with the music <laughs> like you could be like
1: ding ding ding
0: ding ding and then like then the mcdonald's sales yeah. would go up significantly
1: but
0: yeah. yeah i don't know if you remember the corn song from last fall that was big for a while it's sometimes corn. i'll take like yeah a big lump with knobs I'll take <laughs> my like... kids
1: my kids are obsessed with that oh please tell me there's a version of you playing that on bells
0: yeah there is i should post oh, it oh yes it's on please. my phone but uh yes but meme songs, TikTok songs, sometimes I try to play those and then um, people kind of enjoy
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of, I don't know if you're, uh, The Simpsons, um, The Simpsons episode when they're playing, uh, it's her, what t- what kind of church do you think The Simpsons go to? Is there a clarity in terms of their denominational affiliation?
0: Oh, that's a good question. It's, it's sort of like a, Kind of mainline, it's definitely feel. mainline. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, anyway, they, Bert replaces like first the organist. Church of Springfield or something. Oh, exactly. Bert replaces the organist music with uh, "In the Garden De Vida" by Iron yeah. Butterfly. Iron. In Butterfly. the Garden of Eden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dan, 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 dan. Anyway, that'd be hard to play. So, okay. Well, so we're gonna look for the its corn uh, version uh, played on played of the bells by none other than Mitchell Ethan, and we're gonna keep our eyes peeled on his Facebook page for some upcoming work, not just. Uh, play playing pop music by Bells, but also some upcoming work on disability studies and hymnody. Mitchell, I uh, really appreciate your time today, man. It's been, a, a, for me, a particularly really helpful conversation, and I'm really glad that you're doing this work.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. There's there's so much to say and, um, about this topic, but I really encourage folks, especially to read Amy Kenny's book, My Body's Not a Prayer Request, um, or Kathy Black's book, A Healing Homiletic Um Nancy Iceland is a luminary in disability theology. She wrote this book called The Disabled God in the 1990s. And it's a really powerful and important book because it prompts us to recognize the expansiveness of the divine image, which is what Christians are called to do. But especially in the context of disability to recognize that Jesus, after his resurrection, Is disabled. He has wounds in his hands, in his side. This Jesus, this human, the ideal human after his resurrection, a heavenly appearance and likeness is someone who is disabled. And it should give us pause in our notions about what it means to be whole or to be complete, to know that the emblem of new humanity in the resurrection has the experience of disability. It's not something that detracts from our full humanness or something to be fixed in the hereafter, but actually can be part of our full humanness. And that's what she beautifully explains in her book. And it's been hugely influential um, for, for later writers to think carefully about the experience of disability in the church. And there's some other great resources to kind of, at least think and engage with these things. I don't always agree um, with what I read, um, but I think getting that conversation going and stirring um, is, is really important if we have a commitment to seeing the image of God in everyone that we meet.